All right, what we're going to do today, I think this is the session entitled uh, The Constitution in American Self-Government, which is a nice, broad, kind of catch-all uh, topic for us, is uh, trying to remind ourselves before we launch into a discussion of the Federalist, which begins in the next session, uh, and then we'll finish that one up tomorrow, is trying to remind ourselves uh, about where the nation was at essentially around September 17th, 1787. Um, we, we're taking this, these seminars essentially chronologically through uh, the 18th, 19th, and 20th century. And one thing I always have to remind my students before we launch into a discussion of the Federalist Papers, for example, is that the Constitution uh, is not the nation's constitution yet. Um, the nation already has a constitution. In fact, they've got more than one. They've got a constitution at the state level, and they have a national constitution, which, which which one is that? Articles. Yeah, the Articles, right? The Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. Okay. Uh, so it's always uh, helpful to have your students, uh, or even just to ask them, uh, what, what are the uh, governments, plural, that the nation possesses as of September 17th? And to remind them that even though the Constitution uh, that was drafted uh, in Philadelphia was signed by George Washington, um, it didn't become the nation's constitution until when? Yeah, until, well, I guess more specifically, until what happened? Yeah, until the nation decided that what those guys did that summer was worth their approbation. In other words, until we the people decided to make it our constitution, it was just ink on paper. Uh, we'll see that uh, the, the writers of the Federalists have to grapple with this question, whether what was done in Philadelphia was legitimate. Right? They met in secrecy. Not all the states were represented. Right? Uh, and what they did may or may not have been quite according to Hoyle, or at least according to uh, the, the uh, stipulation uh, in the Articles of Confederation about how to alter uh, or, or revise or amend uh, the existing Constitution. Uh, so those, those questions are helpful to keep in mind and, and to remind your students, uh, remind your students of. Uh, so what does the nation know so far? What, what, in short, have we done so far? What have we looked at? We've looked at the Declaration of Independence, right? That's happened already. Uh, and why is that uh, uh, important to remind us of? It reminds us of uh, the goal, as it were, of drafting or even having a Constitution. In one sentence, what's, what is the point of a constitution? Don't try to paraphrase the preamble. Uh, why do you have a constitution? I tell my students it's a plan of government. Oh, I, I guess the other, oh, more specifically then, why, why have a government? Plan of government. To maintain order. To maintain to protect, order. Uh, to protect individual rights yeah. and property. Okay, so that to secure these rights. Remember that phrase? Mm -hmm. Governments are instituted among men. And the question becomes, is this thing that Washington uh, and the rest of the signers uh, produced, is this thing going to secure our rights? And in particular, is it going to secure them in a way that's better than what they already have? Right? Uh, is this new thing necessarily a better thing than what they already have uh, going? Um, we spent a lot of time not only explicating the document of the Declaration of Independence, going through its internal logic, uh, the terms and concepts. Uh, we spent time doing that, spent time going through Locke's second treatise, among other things. You guys have also read 
uh, the Declaration of Rights, 1689, and uh, Cato's letters, some excerpts from that. We've read uh, uh, constitutional, uh, excuse me, the uh, Continental Congress's declarations and resolves. Uh, what are the other ones? Can you, can you guys list these off the top of your head? What, what else did we, we uh, look at, which were representative of uh, the, the discussions that were going on about how to govern yourselves? Uh, Pains, common sense, what else? My Massachusetts State Constitution, another? Yeah, Madison, <laughs> Madison's vices. <laughs> Madison's virtues, too. Uh, yeah, the vices. In other words, his critique of the existing national constitution, uh, federal farmer, excuse me, farmer refuted by Hamilton, just one of a number of things we could have had you read, uh, to see uh, what it was uh, that the nation was talking about. What were the terms of discussion? What were the terms of the debate uh, at that time? Uh, Jefferson's summary views of the rights of British America. Okay, and the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Uh, this, uh, by way of, of, of what we could safely say is, is informing and shaping uh, the nation's uh, self-understanding, uh, the nature of, of human beings and civil society and uh, their government. Um, and then, of course, uh, Gordon Lloyd took us on a whirlwind tour uh, in three sessions. By the way, he usually does that in four so that last session, when you did that, <laughs> I guess on, on a computer, if you can rewind that and go real slow <laughs> forward, you will probably pick up an hour and a half's worth <laughs> more uh, of, uh, uh, of details about what transpired uh, over there, a block away, uh, in the summer of 1787. We usually do that in four sessions. Uh, we forced uh, Gordon had to pay him extra to do it in three. Uh, so now you have, you have a fairly uh, short grasp, I think, of at least what the framers thought they were doing in coming up with this new national constitution. Uh, we also asked you to read the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. I hope you were able to do that or at least glance at that before our time today and especially before uh, our our. Uh, sessions on the Federalist Papers, uh, because the question is now, seven, uh, 17th of September, 1787, the question is, what does the nation think of this new document, this new, this proposed constitution, the proposed constitution of 1787? They were not privy to the debates in Independence Hall. They don't know the give and take. They don't know why there's this three-fifths compromise, why there's this distinction between the extradition clause and the fugitive slave clause. Again, a reminder, the word slave never appears uh, in the Constitution. The word white or the word black never appears in the Constitution. Uh, not until the 13th Amendment do you have the, the word slavery appear. Not until the 14th Amendment do you have the word white uh, appear. Um, and so all the country has at the time is the words of the Constitution. So the question becomes, how are they going to read it? How are they going to interpret it? What is this electoral college thing, after all? The thing that never worked the way <laughs> the founders intended it to work, right? Uh, the battle for public opinion, in other words, is beginning in earnest. Uh, it, we, you could argue that it actually began before uh, September, especially with those who refused to attend. Patrick Henry, I, I remember the, the tour guide 
uh, the Park Service uh, fellow told us, uh, reminded us yesterday that uh, Patrick Henry said he smelled a rat. Okay. Uh, but especially in September, and then the subsequent months, the, the battle for what the Constitution means begins in earnest. And we have to remind ourselves again, even though the Federalist Papers now have uh, this august authoritative status, uh, the Supreme Court, for example, quotes it when it's in their favor, <laughs> when it helps them make their argument, and when it doesn't, they are silent about the Federalists. Uh, but the Federalists at the time was just, these were letters to the editor, if you will, or op-eds. Uh, and, and anonymous ones, or pseudonymous ones uh, uh, at, at best. Uh, most people didn't know who this Publius uh, fellow was. Um, what Publius thinks about the Constitution is how he wants it to operate. He's in favor of it, but it's just his opinion about how the Electoral College should work, how we should understand the executive authority, uh, what, what, what qualifications, uh, outside of the, the, the few that the Constitution stipulates, what cons- uh, qualifications should we be looking for in a representative as opposed to a senator? Uh, or even uh, what, what sort of character uh, should we f- uh, be looking for uh, in a president? How is that related to how the Constitution stipulates that a president should be uh, elected? Um, all of these things aren't set in stone. Nobody, you know, the Constitution didn't come with a guide to its interpretation. We, the people, in a very literal, in a very real sense, had to decide, if we were going to make it our new national constitution, we had to decide what it meant and how it was going to operate. So what, uh, that by way of background, what I want us to do now and, and, and take uh, the rest of our uh, session uh, uh, to do is to go through it one article at a time. Now, we're not going to hit every uh, clause, every jot and tittle in the thing, uh, but I want to take us through all of the articles uh, of the Constitution, step by step, and try to pretend we were in uh, the shoes of uh, the Americans, uh, the American citizenry in the fall of 1787, and ask ourselves, does this plan of government make sense? Is it coherent? Is there a logic to it? Or is it just, as some people have said later, a bundle of compromises? Is it just a bunch of glittering generalities? Uh, Or is there an an internal logic, uh, a consistency, a compatibility of the various clauses? Um, uh, Are are the the powers divided uh, with some semblance of of order and system to it? Um, Is this, in short, the kind of thing that would help Americans secure their rights. Okay? Uh, that's, that's, in general, what I'm shooting for here. Um, let's see, anything else about this? Uh, does it make sense? Um, one thing you might want to do with your students, and, and when appropriate, uh, go ahead and, and, and uh, raise this. When appropriate, you, uh, you should ask them to compare this Constitution with the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. Uh, what are the key differences? Uh, and, and what do those differences suggest about uh, perhaps a shift in public opinion at that time in terms of what was necessary to perpetuate the Union? What, was, what would be instrumental or useful to securing or uh, further protecting uh, individual rights? Uh, and of course, what looms large here is the role of the states. Have the states been eviscerated as a result of this new constitution? Has consolidation, that's a key uh, bad word uh, that the anti-federalists use, has consolidation overrun 
uh, the Confederacy uh, of States. Um, so uh, we won't quite do a kind of a word-for-word -word or a line-by-line -line comparison with the articles, but always remember the articles are looming large here. They're in the background, and they're not, and they're not in the too distant uh, background. Um, let me read you uh, the call, just as a reminder, uh, the call for the Federal Constitutional Convention. This was the Articles of Confederation Congress, uh, February 21st, 1787. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I see you guys are doing something that I wish would actually work. <laughs> uh, I'm going to read from an older version of the Federalist Papers, which actually had the call in it. Yours, if the ISBN is not 451-62881-0, doesn't have it. You, you have the new and important improved in some ways, and unfortunately deficient in other ways, uh, version. Uh, the, the new version, for the sake of space, and this is only one page, I don't understand this, but for the sake of space, they dropped the call to the convention. Uh, so if you have the new uh, uh, Federalist, you won't have this. Um, Thank you very much. I should make a note of that. 243? 243. Federalist number 40. New version. The new edition of the 243. Page 243? In the new edition, not in Thanks. Uh, it says, whereas there is provision. What's that? Federalist number 40, the beginning of it. No, I think that is the beginning of it. That's right. Okay. This is what the Articles of Confederation Congress thought the convention was supposed to do, or what they told them to do. Whereas there is provision in the Articles for making alterations therein by the assent of a Congress of the United States and of the legislatures of the several states, dot, 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 says that the states have suggested a convention for the purposes expressed in the following resolution and such convention appearing to be the most probable means of, here's a key line, the most probable means of establishing in these states a firm national government. Okay? That's the end. I want us to think about ends and means as I go through this and as we uh, walk through the Constitution, and especially as we go through the Federalist Papers, uh, and most especially, most particularly when the, the, the subject of whether or not what they did that summer was legitimate, whether they really did carry out Congress's intent or went off on their own. Uh, to think about ends and means here, the hierarchy of means and ends. So the goal is to establish in these states a firm national government. Notice, they already have a national government. It's the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. But they're calling for a convention to establish a firm national government. This convention will be held in Philadelphia, quote, for the sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation. And what do they do when they're done? Reporting to Congress and the several, legisla uh, state, uh, several legislatures, i.e. states, such alterations and provisions therein as shall, when agreed to in Congress and confirmed by the states, render the federal constitution, here's another key line, adequate to the exigencies of government 
and the preservation of the Union. Okay, so we have two things laid out here in general. What we want to get out of a convention, what do we expect? I see two things here, right? Uh, a firm national government, that's in the first paragraph, and in the resolution, the second paragraph, something that will render the federal constitution adequate to the exigencies of government and the preservation of the Union. Those are the two uh, either synonymous or distinguished aims of the convention. And how are they going to do it? The means spelled out are what? Alterations. It's a word they use. And revising the Articles of Confederation. So the means are spelled out as well as the ends. And the question becomes, if the means are suspect, do they supersede the ends? Okay. Now let's look at uh, the Constitution, unless there's questions uh, about that or comments. Good, good. Exigencies or work? Any other synonyms for exigencies? Necessities. Necessities. Needs. Say that something is exigent. What, what's that? Yeah, things that have that, that come up, especially urgent things. I think there's a sense that you know, exigencies are things that you can't wait on, that, things that have to be addressed or dealt with uh, uh, fairly uh, soon. Uh, but yeah, that's good. Uh, some, some of the terms will need to be uh, translated. And sometimes just send your kids to a dictionary. Have them look it up. Bigger dictionary. <laughs> All right. Uh, preamble. Let's look at that. Page 9. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, we could not graduate from the sixth grade without having memorized the preamble. Not the Gettysburg Address, a little longer. Uh, preamble. And the only way I was able to do it was by watching Schoolhouse Rock. Yeah. Right? Okay. Now, why do I mention that? Um, because of Schoolhouse Rock, which of course uh, uh, justly won many Emmys uh, for its productions, like Conjunction Junction, what's your function? I'm, I'm just a bill. And, and, that, and that, that great favorite of ours, Elbow Room. Yeah. How do you explain the... How we overran the Indians? <laughs> got to, got to, got to get your elbow room. Yes. You can you imagine the guy who had to come up with that cartoon? Oh, by the way, this weekend, I want you to explain how we did this to the Indians. <laughs> In a cartoon version. Go ahead. The interesting about Schoolhouse Rock is the one, the Great American Melting Pot. Yeah. I don't... I, 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 my kids have the, C, uh, the DVD to that now, but I don't know if I've come across that one. The Great Melting Pot. The Great American Melting Pot. So no one from Togo or Nigeria or Kenya? They're all diving into the pot, and it's all white people. You have a couple of Asians, but there's no black people. Wow, because clearly some of the singers uh, in the music. All right, fair enough. I'm glad I, glad I got us on that digression. Uh, why did I bring that up? I want us to look at the preamble and take it seriously. Uh, uh, here's a good point of departure for us. Uh, I mean, you compare this preamble to the one in the Articles of Confederation. What does it suggest is markedly different about this new national government? Uh, 
Um, what, 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 what do we already see uh, hinted here, if not explicitly laid out? Well, the, the government's derived from the people, not the state. Yeah, and we'll see uh, a great example of this when we get to our Gettysburg phase, when we look at the Confederate States of America's Constitution, which is word for word taken from this one with a few key differences. And the differences start right at the beginning. And Lincoln actually points this out in speeches of his as president. Uh, notice how they mute the emphasis on the people. It, yeah, the emphasis is precisely on the states. It's almost a reversion back to uh, the articles. Uh, 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 the emphasis on a firm league rather than a real national government, as Publius will say in Federalist 15. Uh, so here the emphasis is on we the people. Who is doing this work? Who, whose document is it? Uh, it's not a document of the states. It's a document of the people. We the people of the United States. But notice, as, as Gordon Lloyd pointed out yesterday, the states are not enumerated here. Yes, there's a practical reason for that. We, we anticipated uh, the addition of, of further states. But uh, the other reason uh, uh, being much more, uh, a much more noble reason, being a less utilitarian one, uh, the notion here that uh, the emphasis is on the people, that sovereignty lies with the people, uh, not with an existing state or government. Uh, that would take us back to a more divine right of kings approach uh, or understanding of uh, uh, the nature of government, something that we firmly rejected in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, goals, right? I mean, uh, one thing that the Anti-Federalists are going to complain about in this Constitution is it's all structures and mechanisms, right? It's all nuts and bolts. Where's the, you know, the long list of rights, for example? Remember, Declaration of Rights comes right up front. Then you get to the boring qualifications for office and power stuff. Uh, where's all the, the, you know, the appeals to God and virtue and frugality? Where are all the, where's all the flowery Declaration of Independence, you know, a juicy philosophical type stuff? The only part that you're going to get that in, I think, for the most part, is this preamble. Uh, very short. That also, I think, Publius will try to teach us why this document doesn't have boatloads of political aphorisms and maxims. Uh, there's a reason for that, and I'll, I'll just throw that out there to, uh, by way of foreshadowing. I'm not going to get into that right now, but uh, to the extent that we do that, what, what are the ends of this document? Okay, justice, right? Um, usually when we think of government, one of the first things we think of is either peace and order. Uh, here we find that, no, there's actually something higher that government should aim at. Uh, all governments at minimum, aim for peace and order. Despots do a pretty good job with order and a kind of scare quotes version of peace, right? Uh, what about justice? What about the, the things people deserve, right? Uh, what is it that government ought to be doing and promoting, okay? So uh, to establish justice, what else? Try to unpack a few of these terms. Domestic tranquility, that sounds flowery. Uh, what, 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 does that, what does that mean? Peace and order. Yeah, peace and order. Have we seen some lack of peace and order within the states that had nothing to do with foreign intervention? Sure. Okay, Shays Rebellion, for example. Okay. Uh, so, to, so somehow having a national government, interestingly enough, is going to help states do their job better. Right? You would think, well, wow, if there's disorder, civil unrest in the states, who should be the primary uh, agent of responsibility to take care of that? 
the states themselves. But here the claim is, oh, domestic tranquility, that's going to be promoted. That won't happen automatically. Publius is going to deal with this in Federalist 2 through 8, right? The mere fact that one state is sitting next to one state does not guarantee peace. In fact, it's the long car ride. He's touching me. He's touching me. No, I'm not. He's touching me. Right? It's uh, familiarity does not breed peace and accord. Familiarity breeds contempt, fighting, bickering, shooting. Okay? So having a firm national government, the claim here is it's going to help the states get along better. You know, we missed the, the, the key one, right? What does the articles claim to be doing? Perpetuating Union, right? Something as mundane as that. Something that people take for granted. Uh, the assumption that, well, you know, we fought a revolution, we bled and died for one another. Of course we'll always get along. That's not the premise of this document. The premise of this document is to continue unified will take work. This national form of government will help us facilitate that, will help us get along, right? to form a more perfect union. Now, that's a strange grammatical construction, of course, because it's either perfect or it ain't, right? But, okay, we'll let, we'll let that go, let that go. A more perfect union. Okay, we've got union, we've got justice, domestic tranquility. Uh, common defense, that's a pretty self-evident one uh, to deal with. Uh, uh, historically, of course, small republics had the virtue of promoting uh, uh, protection of their people from within. The great difficulty was defending from uh, enemies without, right? And so the only way they could do that in, historically was in a league or with other city-states. Here we say common defense by these states uh, grouping themselves together. We were going over this 9-11 uh, that when the, when the pressure wow. comes on. And so... You know, after the shock goes over, we talk about common defense. Did they attack the state of New York or did they attack us? Right. My kids, 100%, they're attacking us. That was a, that was a hit on America, not a that, hit on a particular company or a state or city yeah, for that matter. That was, that was us. Very and good. I said, under the articles, that might have been just New York. Yeah, well, I mean, th that's precisely the question. Remember those, uh, uh, the documents that we read uh, that preceded the declaration, uh, that phrase, you know, the cause of Boston had to become the cause of America, right? We had to see that as an American thing, uh, something attacking this grander entity, even in, in spite of the fact that there were some pretty big differences among uh, the colonies or, or then states. Uh, so... In a way, you could say that this U.S. Constitution, this proposed Constitution 1787, is another attempt at forming America, shaping America, getting citizens to think of themselves not just as citizens or residents of a particular state or province, but of this thing that George Washington called the American Empire, right? Getting themselves to think of themselves in, with a higher um, uh, horizon, political horizon. Um, do you think it could be said that even prior to the Articles of Confederation, the events with Boston pre-revolution and the Revolutionary War demonstrated that the members of the various states were willing to join together as Americans when faced with a common foreign enemy? 
Mm -hmm. But under the Articles, they were not willing to join together on domestic issues. So the Constitution extended <coughs> that unity beyond a unity that was simply existed when faced with a common foreign power, but extended it into the realm of domestic affairs and issues that involved simply various members of us. Yeah, how the states related to one another, how citizens were going to uh, uh, relate to one another. I think that's, I think that we clearly see uh, evidence of that in this proposed constitution. We see some evidence, I would argue, uh, of that even in the articles. The states, even though they, it starts with a statement of, you know, sovereignty relies on the states, but then it goes on to say, except in those areas that we have vested this uh, uh, first national government, uh, the Articles of Confederation. So I would say that, that some of that was already operating. The seeds of that were already there uh, in the Articles of Confederation. Um, you could even say even Second Continental Congress, there were certain things that the states did together. Yes, in, in prin uh, principally to defend from the enemy uh, from without, uh, but there are ways in which they were also trying to formalize relationships with each other uh, that had nothing to do with uh, external threats. But yeah, we, see, we, we clearly see that in evidence here. Mm -hmm. uh, anything else in this one? Uh, key, real key term, a big one that we haven't mentioned yet. The kicker. General welfare. Uh, that wasn't one I was thinking about, but that's in there. Um, what what does that mean? General welfare, kind of general, huh? <laughs> Common good. Okay, well-being of all. Again, the reminder that government exists for the sake of the governed, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And what was the other one? Uh, what, what, what do we want for ourselves and our posterity? In other words, we're thinking down the road. <laughs> when you set up a government, you're thinking down the road. Liberty. Okay. Oh, that's the purpose. Government. Liberty and justice. Those are the real, I, I would say those are the, you know, the big ones, uh, kind of the highest uh, goals that are being reached there. Uh, we remind ourselves in the preamble that government exists to secure liberty. Right, to secure the things uh, that we already uh, possess, uh, possess. That's why we have formed this Constitution. At least that's what we're attempting to do. Now the question becomes, great preamble, if you agree with all that, now does the following, will the following help us do these things? We can agree with the preamble and go, the rest of this is a shambles. Ew, uh, that's the question. Go ahead. Well, I have a question about the I think some did and some didn't. Uh, for example, uh, in the Northwest Ordinance, they wanted to block out certain sections of the territory, if I remember this correctly, for uh, the establishment of churches and of schools. And Jefferson was very systematic in terms of how he wanted things laid out uh, and what he thought was instrumental towards uh, promoting uh, a, a healthy, virtuous, independent uh, citizenry. Uh, I, I think here, general welfare, we've got to remind ourselves, one person wrote the preamble um, uh, there wasn't a whole, you know, back and forth debate about what uh, should go in there. Uh, this came back from, was it the Committee on Style? Was it Governor Morris? Uh, so uh, I think that was, uh, my, my speculation here is general welfare was a number, I mean, there's 55 guys read in to that, uh, perhaps 55 <laughs> Uh, different understandings, but I would think overlapping understandings of, of in, you know, in general, common good. Um, 
Did it mean welfare in the sense of New Deal programs or Great Society programs? Uh, probably not, but that was, we lived in a different age uh, then. I mean, back then, most of the government responsibility was at the local level, the state level, not at the national level. And, and that was the prevailing consensus uh, throughout the 17 and 1800s. Um, I, I don't have anything more specific on that. Chris, do you? Yeah, I was just saying, since we studied the convention, Okay. And that's on page 385 of the convention. On Very good. And that's the one Gordon mentioned. It said, we the people of the states, and it listed the states, and it didn't um, mention any purposes. Really. Okay. That's on 385 of the convention. Good. And then on page 616 of the convention, you see it as it comes out of the Committee of Style on September 12th, so that's another month later. And this is where Governor Morris has done some really founding work, dropping the states, saying we the people, and then including in it all those amazing purposes that everyone's familiar with uh, ever since. Excellent. What was the second page? Uh, Six sixteen. That, that's that's excellent. No. I think it raises the question how flexible can a constitution be? Uh, what, what do we mean when we say that it's a living or evolving document? What do we mean when we say that we need to interpret it for our age, for our problems, our needs, etc.? cetera? Uh, because taking, you know, there's extremes, right? If you take that to an extreme, we'll get this in the, the D.C. leg uh, when we start talking especially about the progressive era and their critique of the founding. Um, uh, we'll get a notion that in a way you don't have to amend the Constitution to change it. And so it raises the whole question of what a constitution signifies or means if it's the case that it doesn't have to be formally altered either by the amendment process or a decision of, for the, of, by the Supreme Court, for example. Uh, what is this thing that we have if it can be that, become that much, uh, much more malleable than perhaps the way the founders uh, understood it? But, it? but it is the case, you know, a term like general welfare that's not going to have too specific a definition. It really will depend on, on how people understand it. Chris? Yeah, the other place to look for the phrase general welfare where it really comes into our constitutional history is in Article One, Section 8, where the Congress is granted power yes. to lay taxes, et cetera, and to promote for the general welfare. And when folks, when we talk about the Brutus essays and other anti-federalist essays, too, they really zero in on that phrase, general welfare, as well as necessary and proper. And that's say, a, a this means these guys can do anything. Yes, that's a great connection. I mean, that was kind of the, 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 the precursor to the supremacy clause. As soon as you say, well, they can you know, tax you for the sake of or to promote general welfare, it's precisely as Chris mentioned. The Anti-Federalist said, well, shoot. It, could, it may look like specific enumerated rights, right? 17 clauses, let's leave aside the necessary proper clause, the 18th clause for a second. It may look real specific. They can only do, they're limited to these things. But as soon as you say general welfare, wah, you've opened the floodgates to, 
essentially anything Congress thinks is promoting the general welfare, they can say they're exercising this or that authority under a particular clause, but really they're just trying to do this good or that good or solve this or that or, or another problem. Uh, again, uh, I think it raises the more important question, who gets to determine what the meaning of general welfare is? The rulers, the ruled, combination of both, how does that work itself out? Uh, huge question. Well, the preamble uses both of those terms. Hmm. Well, I don't know. Because, I mean, for example, uh, just to pick up on the, the word America, we, as colonies, we were referred to as America or American colonies simply to distinguish us from other British colonies. Uh, but even then, I mean, in the 1770s, when we referred to ourselves as America, there was, there was an understanding that this was the, the collectivity. In other words, this, this, was, this represented all of the states in our peculiar situation. Uh, do you see what I mean? So I'm not, I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure if, uh, if they're... Declaration of the small U, United States of America. Where are the dependent colonies? That one. If you look at the um, but page seven, they talk about we are now the United States of America with a capital U. So they're talking about a very different animal than they were at the beginning of the declaration right there. One individual thing. Then in the Constitution, you could see rhetorically, uh, and I would also argue in, in principally, but you could see at least rhetorically why you would capitalize the U there, because the point of the document is to form a more perfect union. But somebody mentioned something about the articles. The Article 1 and the Article 1 points to capital U. Capital yeah. the, the, among historians, you know what the, the more uh, prevailing question is? Is when did United States of America become singular? When did that become a singular as opposed to a plural? Okay. Now that, I think, in, in our computer age, you could, uh, Google would help you very much, or just doing text searches, word searches, you could find out wh whether people were using that in a collective fashion before the Civil War or not. Uh, anyway. All right. Uh, any other comments on the preamble before we move on to Article 1? Yeah, well, John Calhoun, uh, and not just the, the Calhounites and the states' rights uh, folks, but uh, many Democrats argued against the, what was called the American system, Clay's uh, belief in uh, internal improvements. 
not to be funded simply by the states, but by the federal government. I mean, one of the complaints that leads to the nullification crisis in the late 1820s, early 1830s, is precisely that the, the national government is placing levies and, uh, and duties on imports that affect only a certain part of the nation that seem to be protecting and benefiting another part. Is that promoting the general welfare? No, that, that was their interpretation, that it was not promoting general, wel uh, general welfare, uh, and therefore they were acting unconstitutionally. Mm -hmm. So this is actually an abiding uh, disagreement. Uh, this, two words, general welfare. Well, that's completely different than what I was thinking about. <coughs> certainly still a, a different way in on that same subject. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, as I say, it's, it's funny how these things that look new um, have actually cropped up a lot, uh, a lot earlier. All right, Article 1. Uh, we really are going to make it all the way through the Constitution this morning. I always say that to my students when there's six minutes left. We really are going to make it. What's that? <laughs> all right. Um, again, uh, all right. How, how, what, what do we learn? Article 1. What does this government look like? What's the first thing we find out? What's the first thing we discover? Uh, what about Congress? Two branches, okay? We know that there are two branches. Uh, the other thing I'd like to point out to my students is this key word, vested. Again, the, the, the implication here is that this government can do nothing but for our, we the people, delegating authority to them. So we see here uh, a reflection of a concept of sovereignty that, again, divine uh, right, chucked. Right? There is, this is a, a, a no-brainer for people. Everybody now understands this. This is a very Lockean concept of the distinction between free society and its government. The government can do only those things that the people delegate authority to them. So the powers herein granted, right? they're vested in a Congress. And, so, and we know so now that it's two branches. And these are terms that people are familiar with because it's happening in uh, the states. The states have senates, uh, and they have uh, either assemblies or, or House of Representatives. Um, section 2, what do we learn here? What is Section 2 about? Okay, so now we're starting with the House, and we'll see as we make our way through these, these articles. Uh, we already know this because we, uh, we teach this, but uh, the reader will find that you move from the legislative to the executive to the judicial. Is there, a, is there an order there, or is this... Arbitrary. Could they have started with the judicial, then moved to the executive and the legislature? Why start with the legislative? Just, just throw that out. Um, go on. I thought you were asking. Sorry. I meant it to be rhetorical, but Good. it's yeah, your, it's your gig. Go ahead. I think it's understood. <laughs> Which? What you were asking. Oh, okay. I thought you were giving me an answer. No. No? All right. No, if it was rhetorical, no. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, so we start uh, with, the, uh, with the legislature, and in the legislature, we start with the House, uh, the most popular branch, or the branch most directly reflective of the people. That's what we mean by popular. So how is the House constituted? And I use that word over and over again with my students, especially when we go through the Federalist Papers, uh, which I, I take to be an authoritative, or the authoritative interpretation of the Constitution. Uh, but I, I get them in the habit of using, of using the word constituted so that they understand what constitution means. Right? We've decided to constitute the House this way and constitute the Senate, the judiciary, and the executive 
in particular way. Okay? How is it that we are, uh, in other words, constituting these branches or channeling the consent of the governed in a way that secures rights? Uh, we notice here that the legislative does not all devolve upon one legislative branch and one branch of, of uh, government. In other words, we're dividing powers already. Okay? We're dividing the legislative powers into two branches. Publius is going to give his thinking on the subject, hoping it becomes our thinking on the subject. He's, trying to, he's going to try to get us to think about the whole representing the people and representing the states divide in a particular way. He's going to try to see, show us the benefits of that and not just look at it as a compromise. Right? Uh, remember, um, Publius was privy. Uh, Madison and Hamilton in particular were privy to the debates in the Constitution. They know why it came out the way it did. But the question is, how should we look at what came out? And Publius is going to give his best gloss on that. He's going to teach us to see the advantages of even the compromises that were in uh, the Constitution. Uh, so, uh, what do we learn about the House then? What are, I mean, we don't have to be real specific here, but what, what is this detail? Well, the first thing I want to point out is, I think, is that uh, in the House of Representatives, each state who is going, to, each person within a state is going to be eligible for election is going to be governed not by the most stringent of the state rules, but by the most expansive of the state rules. Of so its, it, of its own state's rules. I'm sorry. The House of Representatives would be more inclusive under state rules than the other branch or any other part of the government. Very good. So uh, a number of things here, right? Uh, here was a decision of the Constitutional Convention not to stipulate a whole heck of a lot of requirements for uh, either electors or the elected. Okay. Who gets to vote for this new national uh, branch of, of government, the legislative uh, branch? Uh, is, well, the, the House. Who gets to vote for a representative? Yeah, people from the states and according to... Yeah, in the most numerous branch of their legislature. So if you're, if you're in New York or South Carolina or Connecticut and complaining... And Publius is going to point that out, complaining about, uh, well, shoot, you know, I, I can't vote, or these certain people can't vote. Is the federal constitution restricting you? No. no. Hey, it's as free as your state wants you to be. Okay? Um, and and that's, that's also a fruitful discussion for your students, is why on earth did they ever have property qualifications, or wealth qualifications, or age, or residency. I mean, those are very fruitful uh, conversations that you can have about them. Even the things that we've sloughed off, right? No longer do we have property qualifications. But what was the fear at the time? If you elected people who didn't have any property, any physical stake in the community, or were not residents for very long, you know, the fear of corruption, the fear of being bribed, right? I mean, there's a, there is an argument. It's a plausible one. Maybe even better than plausible, but there's a plausible argument for why you would want people who ha have some uh, standing in the community, some uh, wealth, some significant stake in the community, why those people, there would be an advantage to have those sorts of people making rules, but it also has its problems, its downsides, and, and, downside, and we eventually decided uh, the downsides overrode uh, the virtues or, or the qualities that we would gain by having wealth uh, as, as a, uh, a qualification. Even bring it Mm-hmm. Good.
Uh, what about uh, qualifications to run for office? The, the key, the, the one thing you want to get your students to see right away, besides the you know, 25 and have to be a resident uh, uh, at the time of the election and citizens for seven years, the key thing is how minimal <laughs> these qualifications are. Boy, how wide the net is being cast uh, for this. Uh, sex is not a bar. Religion, and we'll find that explicitly at the end of the Constitution, but religion is no longer a test here, at least if your state doesn't make it a test for the most numerous branch. Uh, some states did. I might be naive to this, but I was asked the question, and, and I don't know, maybe I'm the only one in the room. Are those arbitrary numbers, seven years, nine years, 25, 30? I mean, what's, is, what is that? Uh, the, arbitrary list, uh, the arbitrariness is less seen, at least in terms of, you, uh, of comparing the Senate. I mean, it's clear there's why it's more in the Senate than not. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, seven has, is an, interest, it's an intriguing number for a number of reasons. Uh, why we, we, we landed at seven rather than another number, in, in part, I think it's arbitrary. I'm not sure. Uh, I, don't, I, don't come, I haven't come across anything that explains explicitly why seven is better than six, for example, or eight. Chris, have you come across anything? The only way that you website and following the conversation. You can go to the Virginia plan and you can see all these blanks. Blank yeah. And, and you find that they discuss this. And, you know, Hamilton came in and said, let them be in there for life. Let them, you know, for, and, and so they, they have these discussions and they fill in the blanks. But they do explicitly talk about uh, these things in the convention. You can find out what reasons. Okay. I don't have them off the top of my head, and when I teach my students, I don't have time. I have a 12-week term. I don't have time to get into the notes in this detail. What I want them to get at is the principle behind it. Why? I mean, seven years is a pretty extensive period of time. It's actually, it turns out to be uh, how long the British uh, Parliament was in session. It was a seven-year. I mean, it changed over time, but seven years they, uh, was, a, was a prevailing uh, uh, practice. Um, I want them to think about comparisons, like why seven as opposed to six months, or as opposed to 20 years. I, I, I have them think about it in, in more broader, uh, with, more broad, uh, with broader strokes. Okay, so qualifications are, are fairly minimal. Um, uh, again, a good thing to remind people, uh, we, we think about, oh, when do women get the right, to, the right to vote under the federal constitution? What year? 1920. When could they have had the right to vote? 1787. <laughs> there is nothing in the Constitution that forbade, forbade states from allowing women. In fact, a few did. I think it was New Jersey did for a while, and for some reason, you guys did so well, they took it away from you. I don't, I don't know why, why they let them do it. Does anybody know? Go ahead. Yeah, they did it because there was a um, civil disturbance at the polls at one point, and they decided that women could not behave themselves properly if they were allowed to be involved. And you're sure these weren't men dressed up like women? <laughs> Okay. Oh, it's got to be true then. All right. All right. No, makes sense. All right. But but notice there was nothing in the federal constitution that prevented women from voting. It was the states. We didn't. In other words, we didn't have to amend the federal constitution to allow women to vote. Amend your state constitution, change its laws. The beauty of the federal constitution is it's done. It's done. 
We don't have to change that uh, fabric. Do you think it could have been argued that the 14th Amendment, with its proscription against the states denying due process of law and equal protection of the law, et cetera, um, are being prohibited from denying that, uh, could have sufficed and then we didn't need the 19th Amendment? Uh, I would I think the strongest argument for that could be made uh, by saying that the 14th Amendment was declaring something that, uh, that was already true of the Constitution. Because the 14th Amendment doesn't add anything, it just makes more explicit, you know, the equal protection of the laws, due process clause, and the privileges or immunities. So, uh, I would, uh, again, I would say it's superfluous or re redundant because it was no, it wasn't barred in, in, in the, uh, the 1787 Constitution. In the proposed Constitution, What? It didn't guarantee women the right to vote, specifically. Oh, well, yeah, well, I, I wouldn't argue with that either. The, the, the Constitution does not mandate that women should be able to vote, but then again, it doesn't mandate that men should be able to vote. Okay? So uh, I wasn't aware of this particular uh, case, uh, but I would say at, at best it declares what's already true of the document, that it's, it's open for that to happen as soon as the states want it to happen. But uh, again, if that's correct about that court case, the court says that simply because it's open to it, it doesn't mandate that. That's a difference between permitting something and requiring something. All right, we need to. We really need to pick up the pace here. Go ahead. Doesn't the Fourteenth Amendment address that issue of states' rights versus national? I mean, doesn't it put a, a limit on the states' rights as far as voting that the states can no longer? Whereas the Constitution originally left that decision about who in the state can vote up to the state governments. Couldn't you say that the Fourteenth Amendment takes that power away from the states by saying that they no longer have the power to bar people? Um, it doesn't. I would say that's arguable in part because we still needed a Fifteenth Amendment, right. right? Apparently, states were still uh, banning blacks from voting, right? Well, and so, and even even with the Fifteenth <laughs> Amendment, right? You know, ratified in 1870, it takes us till 1965, right? The Voting Rights Act of 1965 to really put teeth into the, the constitutional bite of the 15th Amendment. But just because it didn't have the teeth to support it doesn't mean that that's not what it's True, true. All right, what else about Section 2? Terms of office, right? How long? Two years. Two years. Uh, we'll see a whole debate about that, right? The, the, the political axiom at the time in, in many states was where annual elections end, tyranny begins, right? And Publius has to wrestle with that in Federalist 52 and 53. Uh, but a two-year term, some thought it was too long, haha. Uh, we'll see in Publius's mind, he might think it's actually actually uh, too short. Uh, minimal re uh, qualifications for representatives. Uh, apportionment, we talked about this already, so I don't want to uh, delve in it here, but apportionment according to free population, not according to wealth. We decided on individuals, on a strict population, Three persons and three-fifths of all other persons. And we know who those other persons are, right? That was understood at the time to mean uh, slaves. Uh, but the word slave is not used. And that we're going to take a census every 10 years to augment and, and revise the apportionment as populations shift uh, uh, relative to one another. So even though it's, uh, what is it, it shouldn't exceed one representative for every 30,000 Remember, that was changed on the very last day, I think, of the Constitutional Convention. It was supposed to be one for every 
40,000, and then some wise guy decided, oh, we're almost ready, I'll slip this in, and nobody's going to bother. And that's the, t that's the second time Washington stands up and makes a statement at the Constitutional Convention. He says, done. <laughs> right? 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 They're like, okay. Because <laughs> if we were going to have a debate over that, then the whole schmear was going to be open. Well, let's get back in Article 1, Section 3, or this article over here. Uh, not to exceed one for every 30,000. Now it's one for every, what, 600,000? Maybe even more? Uh, unbelievable. Boy, Anti-Federalists thought one for every 40,000. Even one for every 30,000 was too small a fraction. Try one for every 600. Whew. All right. Uh, and each state at least gets one rep. So if you, if you become kind of a loser state and everybody leaves, <laughs> there's like eight people left in your state, you still get one representative. You can't get to a point where you're not represented at all. Oh, sorry, where's, uh, where's uh, our D.C. rep? <laughs> sorry about that. Okay. We won't talk about that. Uh, all right, section three. So we move away from the House to the Senate, the other branch. Uh, what do we notice right off the bat with this? Okay. Two senators from each state term. Six years, fairly lengthy. Okay. And here's an interesting proviso we didn't get to talk about. Oh, staggered, uh, even before the staggered elections, where one-third, one-third, one-third. One vote for each guy. One vote for each guy. Um, each person, thank you. Uh, how does that differ from the Articles of Confederation representation? Each state determined within a certain range how many delegates could represent them, but when they voted, they voted as a block, as a state. Here we have a plurality representing each state. And each member gets to make up his or her mind. What have you just done with state representation? In principle. You've divided it in a sense. In other words, what really will serve the interests of New Yorkers or North Carolinians? You may not have an ironclad categorical representation of what the state, quote-unquote, wants, because as soon as you have two people thinking about something, you introduce the possibility of disagreement. And that disagreement does not have to be resolved. The South Carolinian could vote with the Connecticut representatives and still think that that's the best thing for South Carolina. Okay? The, the fact that they introduce plurality, coupled with one other thing that's not there, that was huge in the Articles of Confederation. What isn't required of senators, or what are they not amenable to? Six-year term, what if you don't like what they're doing under the Articles? Recall. recall. There's no recall. Huge difference. State legislatures watching what their senators, who are not in office now for one year, but six years, and there's two of them. One guy gets it right, according to the state legislature, and the other guy gets it wrong. They can't send that person home. No recall. And one thing we haven't mentioned, also in the House, neither in the House nor in the Senate, no rotation. No mandatory rotation in office. Okay. Uh, is there a hand? Also the salaries. Go ahead about, oh yeah, good. Salaries? Rather than in the past, the article was paid by the state. Okay. 
Now we have a public treasury, right? Now these guys, you know, who butters their bread? <laughs> Not the state legislatures once they're appointed. This is going to come out of federal dollars, uh, even further distancing them uh, from any kind of reflexive uh, representation of their uh, state interests. I'm sorry, I think I missed in the debates at what point they decided and why to go from one purge state to two purge states. Mm, I, I, I don't know. Chris, you got anything off the top of your head on that one? I don't remember that. Why did they decide to go from one senator from state to two? I don't remember that one. But again, ashbrook.org. Go to the Constitutional Convention website. It's all there. And it really, the, the, the search engine is very powerful. Putting in, putting in terms and, and getting you uh, to those, uh, uh, when those issues were discussed. Uh, all right. Uh, also, mode of appointment. I just mentioned this already. How do you get to be a senator? State legislature. Right? We'll keep that in mind when we look at the Lincoln-Douglas debates, even though they were campaigning for office, an incumbent senator versus uh, someone out of office, just a private citizen, uh, Lincoln. Um, people were not voting directly for Stephen Douglas or for Lincoln. They were voting for a political party that would be presumed to vote for one or the other uh, uh, nominee. Uh, Six-year term. Uh, qualifications for senator, again, fairly minimal. No wealth requirement for the senator, which is supposed to, uh, supposed to the Senate's supposed to be a more select body. Uh, there's no wealth requirement, just, uh, what is it, instead of 25 years, 30. Instead of seven years citizenship, nine. Ooh, <laughs> seven, nine. Okay, fair enough, but a little, little bit longer. Had to be a resident at the day of the election. Talk about carpetbagging, right? You could just you could be campaigning your whole uh, uh, time leading up to uh, the day of the election, and then cross the border, <laughs> and you're there. Uh, again, a, a way in which that they could cast the net very widely uh, for for that. Um, what 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 uh, what what else is mentioned here uh, that we did? We uh, it was mentioned under the house that we didn't talk about. Uh, what other kind of key function they can they can form? Uh, perform impeachments. impeachments. All right. Okay. So the House impeaches. In other words, they formally charge someone, a federal official, with uh, malfeasance, and the Senate gets to try and convict uh, in cases of, of impeachment. He wasn't impeached. He was not impeached. Well, I mean, I'm sorry. He was impeached, but he was not. He was not convicted. Sorry, sorry. Thank you. No, the, you need to distinguish impeachment from the actual punishment. And what the Constitution stipulates very explicitly is that the punishment is limited to removal from office. And then, if somebody wants to try him for any other crime that he may have committed, then that could, that could happen at uh, that level. But it doesn't happen from the, uh, happen from the federal government. So, uh, uh, did not define it correctly. 
I don't know what books. Go, go ahead, Gilbert. Can you say that louder? Thank you. All right. Moving on to Section 4, the famous, or what's known as the Time, Places, and Manners Clause. Uh, who determines the time, places, and manner of uh, elections for senators and reps? States, with what exception or qualification? Yeah, Congress has the authority to change it. Uh, and it makes sense since it is Congress that's being affected here. Uh, if the state decided never to hold <laughs> an election, that would be a problem. We would be constitutionally not permitted uh, to, to deal with that, short of an amendment. Okay? So Congress can make or alter those res regulations except for, and notice which house, the Senate, because that represents states, in terms of the place uh, where the election uh, will be held. Okay? The fear of the Anti-Federalists was that, the, uh, that governments could actually make it difficult to get to uh, either a court or uh, a polling place to actually uh, do the, the public's business. Section 5, uh, let's just, these, these are fairly uh, perfunctory, but Section 5 deals with what? Okay, they judge their own members, their, their, own, their own qualifications, uh, election results. Uh, as well as uh, uh, they order their own proceedings, right? They, they take care of their own uh, housekeeping, as it were. Section 6, again, the emphasis here that the compensation comes not from the state legislatures, but from the public treasury. It uh, uses the word treasury, so it raises the question, you know, can you charter a bank? When we get to Article 1, Section 8, uh, it doesn't say anything about banks there, but we, all, we have to deal with money. What would you do with that money? Where would that money be held? How would it be dispersed, et cetera? Uh, here it talks about a United States Treasury, not the state legislatures. Uh, and it also bars them from holding other federal offices. Okay, Section 7, particular okay, revenue bills, what about them? They originate in the House, in the most popular branch, but what change was actually affected? What change was actually made to kind of minimize the actual import of that? Yeah, the Senate can change it now. It's not an up or down vote. Uh, they're not a rubber stamp for that. They can actually uh, alter it or amend it. A particular event, you mean? I don't know of a particular... I don't know of a particular event, but I do know that you know the experience of the colonists was that we would that the king would just 
disassemble. <laughs> in other words, he would say, you can't assemble. He would close uh, down this, uh, the colonial assembly, and we got used to going to the city tavern and carrying on our business over there. Go ahead. Well, I mean, you know, that, that's what started the English Civil War. When the king sent troops into the House of Commons to arrest some of the leading members. Ah. Okay, great example. There's another hand over here. <laughs> Half a gold star for you. I'll give you credit. Uh, so section seven is how a bill becomes a law, right? And includes this provision about uh, money bills. Schoolhouse rock. Except you've got to add stuff now like earmarks and filibusters and whatnot. And what's interesting is who gets to make a law? Not just the House and the Senate. There's presidential involvement now. Uh, the, there's no council of revision. That's gone. But we have the president involved uh, in a way that's fairly substantial. We're, we'll see that in Publius. He thinks that the, the, that the threat of a veto actually operates on the uh, thinking, the deliberations of the House and Senate, even when he doesn't exercise it. He doesn't need to exercise the veto in order to have an influence on uh, the bills that are drawn up. Uh, that's Publius's argument. Again, his way of trying to teach us how this could be used, how it could operate. Uh, so the president has this option of a negative, but it's not absolute like King George III's. It's not an absolute veto. It's qualified by the fact that if he sends it back with the message explaining why he doesn't like it, what can the House and Senate do at that point? Override it. With what kind of vote now? Two-thirds Two of a vote. Both houses. And they can't change anything. Uh, Section 8. This is the biggie, right? Section 8 is where we learn what? The enumerated powers. What Congress can do. Now, after all these that's seven sections, we finally get to the juicy stuff, right? We get to what it is that Congress can do. And I'm not going to go down that list, but there's 18 clauses. Power to you know, tax, uh, raise an army, uh, naturalization, among other things. And the kicker, of course, is the 18th clause. Uh, necessary and proper. So we've got powers of Congress there. Uh, and the key difference here, Publius will point this out uh, in the Federalist Papers, the key difference between the Articles of Confederation and the U.S. Constitution's Congress is this power now applies where? To individuals, right? When they pass a law, it's actually a real law now. It's a command with sanction, <laughs> right, that applies to individuals. What, did, what power did the Articles of Confederation Congress have? Yeah, yeah. were they laws? Can, 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 you, can one governmental entity command another governmental entity? Yeah, they were, they were requests. So the, I guess the word was re, they could requisition for troops and money. Yeah, that's... <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say something else about when the UN does, at, says... You can't mine, you know, a certain harbor, and they're like, you and what army is going to make us? Okay. Uh, Federalist 15 is a great e uh, essay uh, where Publix explains the difference between a league on the one hand and, and their operation on good faith and a real government. In other words, that passes laws with teeth. Laws apply to individuals, not governmental entities. Okay. Here... The laws apply to individuals. We don't have to go through states now. We circumvent 
state legislatures. Anti-federalists do not like this. Okay, we'll see why. So the laws applies to uh, the laws apply to individuals. Section nine. Now that we know what the powers are, whoop, section nine tells us the rights. Uh, more specifically, yes, it is rights, but how 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 do we ensure ourselves the rights? Because I thought powers are for the sake of our rights. I thought these laws are going to be passed to secure my rights. Yes, but section nine says. Yeah, okay, here are some explicit uh, ex uh, declarations and restrictions regarding those powers. In case you didn't know, <laughs> these 18 clauses don't allow you to do the following. Guarantee the, the following. Uh, and any uh, highlights in that section? Go ahead. Well, um, do you think of those in terms of like, negative and positive liberty? Is that like, a useful concept? Where, like, things to infringe our, uh, upon our liberties. That, yeah, that, that's one way of doing it. First one mentioned there deals with what issue? Slavery, right? Again, slave not used. The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit, i.e. slaves, shall, the slave trade shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1,808 but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation not exceeding $10 for each person. And, and Gordon went over that in some details. So I won't belabor it too much, but I'll say this. Um, it took effect January 1st, 1808, as soon as we could, which showed you that the impulse was anti-slavery rather than pro-slavery. Big debate among abolitionists is the Constitution a pro-liberty document or pro-slavery. Frederick Douglass began as a pro-slavery interpreter of the document. Then in 1849, 1850, decided, no, this really is pro-liberty and interpreted it differently. Uh, one key point is, uh, was this law violated between 1808 and 1861? Of course. Uh, when was the first time anyone was ever hung for violating the slave importation provision, uh, the law by Congress? Who was president? Lincoln. Lincoln was the first one. And with the, the, the curious episode, um, I have to share this, uh, it involves uh, a, a, a great surprise. By that point in time, people were convicted or fell short of convictions through technicalities. In other words, no one was ever really punished to the fullest extent of the law until this chap. Nobody is thinking, even under Lincoln, under Lincoln, that he's going to be punished. So when the verdict comes down, guilty, and the punishment's going to be death. Lincoln postpones the execution, and he explains why. Do you know why he postpones it three weeks? He said, in, 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 I'll paraphrase, because uh, I'll butcher his prose if I don't. Um, he says, essentially, we all know you weren't expecting to be put to death for this. So I'm going to postpone it so that you will have time to come to terms with your maker. The idea was it would have come as huh, not just a literal shock to him, but a psychological shock that he was actually going to be punished. He's going to be killed, executed for uh, committing this crime, uh, and he would not have had his soul prepared for the event. So Lincoln gives him three, mo uh, three weeks to get right with his maker. Uh, yeah, he, he's not paid short shrift. Uh, it's a longer shrift that he is given. Slaves force keeping people in 
involuntary servitude, the punishment was a $10,000 fine and six months probation. Oh, Hmm. Was that with Asians in New York? That was in California. Okay. Slavery is not serious. All right. So restrictions here, certain specifics that even Gordon, meant, uh, Gordon mentioned yesterday. You know, privilege of writ habeas corpus, which will come up in our next segment in Gettysburg. Bill of Attainder, ex post facto law. Um, no titles of nobility. Okay. What about Section 10? Okay, if Section 9 restricts the power of Congress, Section 10? Yeah, restricts the power of states. Interesting that the American people under this document choose not only to limit their national government, but take this opportunity to limit their state governments. Not doing it through a state amendment process, changing their state constitutions. They enshrine it in the national constitution. Somehow or another... They think for the national constitution to be effective, there requires some give on the part of states. And this is the American people's opportunity to impose this on the states across the board. Weren't a lot of these violations that were forbidden to the states occurring legally under the Articles of Confederation, such as um, taxing exports and... and um, um, dealing with foreign countries and, and treaties and I, that kind of thing? I think there are some differences, but there's actually, uh, as well, there are some similarities. I mean, some of these restrictions were also restrictions that you can find in the articles. And again, here, this would be a good one. Compare Section 10 of the Constitution with the relevant sections in the Articles of Confederation to see what was carried over and what was added to further, if you will, uh, diminish the sovereignty or the so-called sovereignty of the state governments. Okay. So we have powers granted in 8, powers limited in 9 at the federal level, powers limited in 10 at the state level. Did we get through Congress? Article 1, whoo, all right. 11 minutes, can be done, must be done. Article 2, we move to a different part of the government. Again, we see no mention of the phrase separation of powers. Publius says that's the beauty of the Constitution. We don't mention it, we do it. Okay? And we'll see this hashed out, Federalist 47 through 51, why Publius thinks this is one of the glories of the Constitution. It got busy with the actual structuring of the thing, building in mechanisms and incentives to make sure that the powers do remain separate for the most part, and actually, interestingly enough, not separate in some instances, to make it work in practice, rather than having what I call kind of a bumper sticker approach, like, I heart separation of powers. You, know, you saw those in certain state constitutions. We love separation of powers. The only good constitution is a separation of powers constitution. Blah, blah, blah. Hearts everywhere, smiley faces, gold stars. And then <laughs> proceed not to do anything about that to make it really practical or effective or just to flat out violate uh, their declaration. Uh, so no axioms, no declarations about separation of powers. They just do it, okay? Legislative here, now we move to the executive. Uh, big, what's the big, uh, a big difference you can uh, point out to students regarding Article I and Article II? What, what's, what, anything stand out right away? Shorter, okay? Uh, you don't have the Article I, Section 8 uh, comparable enumeration of powers. 
And I would argue that the reason for this is because these are qualitatively different functions. That to create a law and to make sure you, you, you maintain a free society, right? Those laws, uh, that government, to, make, uh, to be a free government needs to be limited, and so you're going to spell out what they can do. But that to execute laws, you can't as well, or shall I say, you can't with the same degree of specificity and exactitude, you can't launch into a list of 18 or 28 ways in which the president will carry out the powers, uh, not carry out the powers, but carry out the intentions of Congress when they pass a law. How, what does it take to enforce a law? Prudence. <laughs> Wisdom. And these have to be applied in specific cases. In 1954, Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, decision uh, in 1954, the court says public schools can't segregate on the basis of race. Now what? How is it implemented? You wait one more year, Brown v. Board of Education 2, where they say you can do it with, quote, all deliberate speed, which Thurgood Marshall, the lead counsel for the NAACP, said it means S L O W, right? Uh, how long does it take for these schools to be desegregated in, ooh, let's see, Central High, Little Rock, Arkansas? Not till 1957 and not until Ike decides to send in the 101st Airborne, okay? How do you spell that out in advance? You can't, right? Uh, and so who uh, uh, the president is, how he's appointed, how long he's appointed for, uh, these become important questions, but what's interesting is it isn't spelled out. Certain things are spelled out exactly. What powers do we know the president has? And, and, and it's, it's spelled out. What does he get to do? Commander-in-chief, first one listed, right? Commander-in-chief, that's clear, bang. What else? That we know, you know, it's, it's, in, it's in his job description, as it were. What's that? He has the pardoning, pardoning power. What else? Treaties, but with the Senate. I'm like, man, he doesn't get to do that by himself. Okay, because treaties are kind of like laws, right? But among nations, so he has to. He 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 exercises that jointly with the most select legislative body. The body that's going to be around longer. Pubis is going to explain why you don't let the House get in on treaties. Why it's appropriate that Senate should do this. Uh, treaty making. What's the other thing? Executive departments, and how do you fill those departments, among other things? Appointments, but yeah, executive departments and the judiciary, he gets to do that with the, the uh, Senate as well. So treaty making and appointments, commander-in-chief. So he wears a few hats that are spelled out in detail, but other than that, what is the executive power? The power to execute, carry out, yeah, what does it say? There, there are some things that are spelled out there. Where's his oath? Uh, Gordon Lloyd uh, pointed this out to me yesterday. This was actually typical for governors as well, that the executives at the state level had their own specific oath, separate to the oaths that other civil servants were required uh, to uh, subscribe to. Here we see uh, that example replicated at the national level. Bottom of 19, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, Here's his mission statement, if you will. 
preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Another place to look for what he's supposed to be doing is Section 3, end of that uh, clause there. He shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. So preserve, protect, and defend the United States apparently beyond treaty-making, pardoning, appointment, and commander-in-chief functions Everything else is really left to his discretion. Scary. <laughs> Scary, according to the Anti-Federalists. The Federals will say, no, actually, the Constitution of the executive actually helps the country make sure that he does his job well. It will keep him honest, and I'll leave, our, our, I'll, I'll leave it at that. We'll, we'll discuss that when we get to that. Um, but because of the prudence and the discretion that needs to be exercised here, uh, at least according to the framers, they didn't think you could spell this out in, in great detail. And I know a lot of people say, oh, part of the reason they left it blank is because they knew it was going to be Washington anyway. I think there's some uh, argument to it, but I think there's a, a more principled uh, reason for it. And I think it's the, the principled reason is that they understood the distinction between legislative and executive functions. You can't spell out uh, the, the executive function uh, with, any, uh, with the same degree of exactitude as you can with the legislature. It's a different animal. Could you also say that the legislature, if they felt the executive power was getting too off hand, could somehow legislate um, some sort of control over the president? They knew that the legislature may have that power through laws or, or not. I knew that up. Uh, and that's the reason why they left the, the, the executive more right. Uh, right. broad? Yeah, yeah. Well, they've tried, and of course, no president has ever said that he really is bound by the War Powers Act. He says, you know, I'm bound by the Constitution, as he understands it, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, any other highlights from this section before we get to the judiciary, which we must do in the remaining three minutes, plus the rest of the Constitution? Go ahead. Quick question. Would it be reasonable to explain to my students that, that the last sentence you read, we shall take care of the laws be faithfully executed? Kind of like necessary clause, but there's yeah, in, but in a way, the, the president, the whole, uh, I would say, that and the oath in Section 1 are his necessary and proper clause. I mean, he gets to decide how to carry out or to enforce the laws. Yes, that, that, that would be, I think, a reasonable approximation or equivalent. Yeah, that's good. I haven't, I haven't seen that parallel, but I think that's right. Uh, what's interesting is how much discretion, though, we give one individual at the national level to carry out his function. Uh, you could also have a discussion with your students about what it means to execute something. You think about a will, right? The will, uh, you know, the deceased, uh, to carry out the, 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 the will of the, the deceased, you need an executor. But when, when you're talking about an executor of a will, how much, does an how much discretion does an executor have? None. If the will is vague, he can't say, hmm, no, that should go here, right? <laughs> uh, it should go in my pocket. He has, I mean, I mean, when the will is specific, right, all the money goes to the cat. The executor could think that's the most stupid thing in the world. But if it's clear <laughs> that it goes to Kitty and not to Missy, uh, too bad. But if it's vague or ambiguous, he can't, he doesn't, as far as I understand, he doesn't exercise discretion. To what extent should a president exercise discretion? Um, that, that, that is, I mean, there's a whole book written about this. Uh, Mansfield's book? Pretty, pretty high to Taming the Prince. He, he traces this development of executive prerogative. Locke talks about it. 
uh, a lot, a couple of chapters in, in, in the latter portion of uh, the Second Treatise of Civil Government. Uh, executive prerogative, and, and Lincoln, we'll see this, Lincoln e exercises executive prerogative. He starts doing things uh, when Congress is out of session between April uh, and July of 1861, and he explains, he's got some explaining to do, to quote Lucy. He has to explain to the American people through their representatives in House and Senate uh, why he did what he did. And in some instances, Congress disagreed with what he did, saying that, well, we, yeah, it was right that you exercise these powers when we were out, but this one in particular, you never have the right. You never have the authority to do this. And Lincoln disagreed. We'll, we'll get into that. Uh, Electoral College. Uh, again, uh, very strange animal. Don't have time to get into it right now, but uh, you can think about how people and states are represented in that process. Uh, mode of, uh, I mean, excuse me, term of office four years. Again, indefinitely reeligible. Certain states, governors serve one term, and that was it, or they had to sit out for a while before they got to run uh, for office again. Certain states, their powers were not spelled out in the Constitution. It was up to the legislatures to decide. Uh, whether they, uh, what powers they should have. Um, this is a much stronger uh, executive than any of the states uh, up until that time had. Uh, qualifications for president, pretty minimal. I'll just uh, direct your attention to that. How he's compensated, uh, the, the extent to which that is Congress's authority and the extent to which Congress's authority is restricted with regards to that when and how they can change uh, his compensation. His oath we talked about. Um, and grounds for impeachment are spelled out specifically, so it cannot be, it's not left to Congress's discretion uh, just whenever they disagree with him. Again, part of the reason why, uh, part of the way in which the Constitution enshrines separation of powers. Article 3, uh, another short one, dealing with the judiciary. Uh, as Gordon Lloyd pointed out, the, the, the phrase judicial review does not appear there, but the phrase judicial power does. The question is, what did they mean by judicial power? Uh, some debate about that, but interestingly enough, not a whole lot from the, uh, the anti-federalists. Not a whole, uh, at least it wasn't a broad, uh, broadly based um, complaint about the judicial power. Term of office, big difference, right? Good behavior, essentially life term. Uh, Publius and Federalist 78 gives a very extensive explanation uh, for why he thinks that's a good thing. That's an improvement. That helps justice, to secure justice, that helps secure justice, that helps secure liberty. Uh, compensation, again, restrictions on how Congress can uh, uh, pay for, for the court. Uh, section two, really important, the ju jurisdiction. Most cases are appellate. In other words, they have to go either to the highest state court or a lower federal or district court before it gets to the Supreme Court. Very few cases get to the Supreme Court upon what they call original jurisdiction, where you could take it there right out of the box. Almost always, you've got to go somewhere else first. Uh, yeah, Bush v. Gore, case in point. That was not a case of original jurisdiction. Uh, trial by jury guaranteed, a big fear of the anti-federalists. They wanted that taken care of. Um, interestingly enough, again, uh, how many justices are there supposed to be according to the Constitution? Doesn't say. Who gets to determine? Congress. Congress. Well, President, as part of the, the bill-making process, so uh, it, it has as few as four and as many as ten in our, um, uh, in our history. I think that's has been the extremes. Right now we have nine. Um, but Congress gets to determine how many courts there are, how many justices there are. Uh, they can actually 
change jurisdiction as well. Very debatable uh, point among historians. Well, to what extent can Congress actually remove jurisdiction from the court for certain issues? Uh, treason defined here in, in most explicitly. It's not arbitrary. And, of course, it makes sense that it would be done in the uh, judicial branch. I am over my time here, I, I notice. Unless Chris's watch tells me it's 10.29 with 30 seconds left. Hey, you're on Lucas' time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, give me one minute. Let's go through four <laughs> the four remaining articles. I can do it. Article 4, comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y, not comedy, comity, uh, promoted among the states. Essentially, you know, what is done in one state is respected by the other states. Um, uh, they call that the law or the principle of comity, right? Full faith and credit clause, that's section 1. Privileges and immunities guaranteed, section 2. Uh, and again, uh, Gordon points out the useful contrast between the extradition clause on the one hand and the fugitive, what we call the fugitive slave clause. Of course, slave is not used uh, under Section 2. Compare those two. How new states will be formed. Uh, we mentioned this already, but how uh, we kind of rehabilitated the notion of colonization. Here, we don't make colonies. We make states. We invite them when they are an appropriate population and uh, they, when they present a constitution. We invite them to join us, to become a part of uh, the United States. So how the Congress will, will regulate federal territories. Very controversial point when it comes to the Dred Scott case in 1857, whether Congress has the authority to regulate slavery in the federal territories. We'll talk about that a lot. Uh, and then the Republican Guarantee Clause, that each state is guaranteed a Republican uh, constitution, a Republican form of government, excuse me. Article 5, how do we change the Constitution? Over time, we'll find through experience or oversight or ambiguity uh, that we need to make some changes in this. And in fact, a certain number of states, as you guys know, uh, ratified the Constitution with the expectation that certain amendments, and they spelled those out, <laughs> that certain amendments uh, be uh, added. So the amendment process uh, with limits on a few sections, right? We couldn't amend the importation clause of the Constitution, right? We were on good faith. Uh, we, we agreed that we wouldn't allow Congress to amend that portion uh, of the Constitution. Uh, actually, there's a couple of portions, a couple of sections. But how it's amended, and notice them uh, here, key change from the Articles of Confederation, right? Does not require unanimous consent. Two-thirds of both branches of the legislature, three-fourths of state legislatures or conventions thereof. Uh, Article 6, the assumption of debts, a big issue, a very practical issue at the time. Uh, the famous supremacy clause, uh, a, a, a reinforcement of the idea that this Constitution really is over the citizens and uh, the state governments, and no religious test, at least at the national level, very different from uh, certain or several of the states which did have religious tests to, to assume office. And then Article 7, uh, again, big difference, how to ratify or put into action and put into action the, the Constitution. Um, how many states will it require for this ink on paper to actually become the national government? Nine. Now, what happens to places like North Carolina, which rejected it in their first state convention, or Rhode Island, which never even showed up? It took a while. Can the nine bind the others? N no. 
right? Look at the language, very, uh, very uh, specific here. And here we see the consent principle at work. Where does it say? Between the states so ratifying the same. Whose constitution is it? Those that choose to make it their constitution by the deliberate expression of the will of the American people when you reach a sufficient, not majority, supermajority, right? Nine of the original 13, three-fourths, will be enough to make this the Constitution. Marked departure from the Articles of Confederation uh, and Perpetual Union. All right. Out of time.